Welcome to RAGE, the podcast of the University of Denver's Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE for short. I am the show's host, Tom Romero, and I'm a professor of law and history here at DU, as well as IRISE's director. RAGE explores the risks and rewards of being a critical race scholar in higher education. The past couple of years have sparked an unprecedented conversation about racial and intersectional forms of social inequality. In an era of black lives, dreamers, the Flint water crisis, Standing Rock, and a vigorous backlash against these movements, everyone is talking about rage in brand new ways. Critical scholarship and public engagement by race scholars in op-eds, blogs, and essays have often been front and center in these formulations. Yet, in higher education, we either taken for granted or ignored altogether the emotional, professional, and even physical risks to which race scholars are subjected. The race scholars have long made enormous contributions to understanding systemic and institutionalized forms of inequality, their work has been marginalized, sometimes silenced, and often ignored. The consequence has been long-simmering collective disillusionment about the campuses and institutions of which we are a part, while the rage of others against race scholars is legitimized and made policy and practice. For this episode, I'm here to talk about such issues with Dr. Amber Johnson, an associate professor in the Department of Communication at St. Louis University and the founder and director of the Justice Fleet, a mobile network of box, box trucks that gives experiences that foster community healing through art, play, and dialogue. Structured around the concepts of radical forgiveness and radical imagination, it invites the community to come together to imagine new systems and build a world without injustice. The University of Denver is hosting the Justice Fleet and is the reason why Dr. Johnson is here with us today. So welcome, Dr. Johnson. Thank you. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. I know we've been keeping you busy here uh, as you've been visiting the University of Denver, so I very much appreciate the fact that you're, you're taking some time to talk more about your work, your scholarship, uh, the Justice Fleet uh, with us. Um, for our first question today, and the thing I'd, I'd really like to explore with you further is, is for you to share your journey. Um, to becoming what you describe on your faculty uh, spotlight in the Justice Fleet webpage as a scholar, artist, and activist. So becoming a scholar, artist, activist is really a, a product of not wanting to compartmentalize all these bits and pieces of myself. And so when I showed up um, to St. Louis University amidst, well my interview was actually during the non-indictment of Darren Wilson. That's a whole nother story. Um, which I also wrote about because I needed to write through that, the, the, the cathartic process of writing. Um, but when I showed up, I realized, like, I am an artist, I am a scholar, I am an activist, and if I keep doing these things separately, I'm not going to have time to just to be. Um, and so how can I take these three things and merge them in ways that make my practice more efficient in terms of time, energy, space, um, but also still do the work of trying to... Um, you know, do outreach and work with other folks and create a sense of empowerment around taking control of our own healing processes. So this is a product of me decompartmentalizing Amber the activist, Amber the scholar, Amber the artist. Um, I get to be all of who I am when I do this work. Um, sort of push you back a little bit in terms of, of each of these identities, um, artist, activist, scholar, right, in, in no particular order. Um, when did you start thinking of yourself in those sorts of terms? So imposter syndrome is real. Um, I think a lot of us rely on other people to see us before we see ourselves. And so me coming into those titles was a long process. 
Um, and I, I remember distinctly the scholar part happened when I was in my PhD program and I was thinking, I'm learning from some really brilliant people, but I'm learning from some people who aren't so brilliant. If they can do it, so can I, right? And, and we come into our brilliance in different kinds of ways, um, but we don't start off brilliant necessarily, right? It's a journey. Um, and so acknowledging that I'm, my professors are where they are in their journey and I can meet them where they are, that means that I can do this too. Um, and I remember at the time my advisor told me, you know, you're going to be great. And I was just like, yeah, right. <laughs> no, right? So again, relying on other people to see us first. Um, the artist was a little bit easier because it's something that I've been doing since I was younger. I started off making jewelry and uh, manipulating metal. And I've since then sort of migrated through photography and now into painting. Um, and I grew up with, around a lot of artists. So the artist part was a little bit more easier to understand. And then the activist part, I think, is something that just came sort of naturally as someone invested in human experiences and wanting everyone to have the opportunity to thrive. Um, I've always been an activist um, inside and outside of the classroom. And the, the more that I've grown and learned, the easier it was to sort of claim the title activist. Um, so I think I was doing it, but it wasn't necessarily calling it that. Um, so yeah, that's how those three sort of things come. It's like over time, doing certain things, people starting to see you and acknowledge, oh, you do this thing, and, and they name you sometimes for yourself. And you're like, oh yeah, I do do that thing. I am that. Yeah. And it's okay to call myself that. Oh, that's great. Thank you. I, prior to, to us having this official conversation, um, you mentioned you're from Los Angeles. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about how growing up in Los Angeles shaped your, your journey into each of these spaces and, and identities? Well, one of the beautiful things about L.A. is it's super diverse because so many people, I think Hollywood uh, epitomizes the American dream in a lot of ways. And so lots of people migrate um, to Los Angeles. And so I grew up in extremely diverse spaces. Um, and so leaving that, I, I took the idea that diverse bodies and voices are valuable for granted. Because coming out of L.A. and seeing, oh, the rest of the U.S. isn't like that. Um, it's very different uh, in the Midwest, right, or down south or whatever. Um, so I think it, I'm thankful to have grown up in L.A. because it instilled in me that everyone has innate human dignity and value, especially as diverse bodies. Um, but it also made me very cautious of how we perform those identities and not being superficial. So I, I enjoyed leaving L.A. <laughs> For that reason, I understand yeah, completely. Well, I see this, and I mean, as I sort of mentioned already, this is connected to Justice Fleet. It seems like the the seamless connection between the identities of activist, scholar, artist, um, growing up in in a space that seems to value diversity and. Uh, also a sense of ur urbanity, right, and density, and what, what that means um, as we share spaces is directly tied to the, to the Justice Fleet, at least it seems to me. Um, can you tell us more about the Justice Fleet and how this idea came about? Yes, so we're a, a mobile museum that fosters healing through art, dialogue, and play. And so essentially we take these activities that we call exhibits um, into community spaces that are often ignored or marginalized by institutions like museums and university spaces. Um, and we invite people to create things that offer a sense of healing, but that thing also becomes a part of the exhibit, a part of the museum. So people come 
um, and build the, the exhibit with us. And so the idea is that you are valued as a member of this community. You are an artist, we're all artists, because all an artist does is create, humans create, right? Um, but some of us don't see value in creation unless it's attached to a big name or um, an institution or a lot of money or success. And so our, our motto really is humans do have inherent value and dignity. We are all artists who produce and we can use um, the space of production to confront social injustice. It makes it a lot easier. Um, so that's why we use play and art um, as, a heal as healing tools. You mentioned in terms of constructing this, thinking about the Justice Fleet, um, the art that's being created, sort of taking place in, in both academia or higher education, or at least the physical space of that, and, and the museums. Um, I want to explore that in a couple different realms. Mm -hmm. um, first, as you began to think of the Justice Fleet, and about creating, in some sense, sort of counter-narratives right? mm -hmm. uh, to, to the way that stories and research um, and knowledge production is, is happening mm -hmm. and, and disseminating each of those spaces. Tell us a little bit about that creative process. What was, what was important in terms of creating a structure like the Justice Fleet from your board to your community partners to anything else that might be missing? The process. Um, so it's a, a lot of stakeholder meetings, right? And a lot. So it, back up. I do these things in my class. So the activities are things that I've done for a while, over a decade. Um, and my students kept saying, this is transformative. You should take it out of the classroom. And so finally, I started listening. Um, and so that, that required tons of stakeholder meetings. And um, I, I'm already connected with communities in St. Louis because I'm an activist. Um, so it was easy to bring people in and say, how can we do this thing and do it well? So our first bit of advice came from Eileen Berman in the Fine Arts Department at SLU, and she said, make it pretty so people feel welcome and like you care about them. Bet. So we're very pretty. Um, but then above and beyond that, it was just like, you know, having materials that are accessible, um, breaking down the ideas so that they're accessible, creating space for people to learn, but also to explore the things that they already know and share what they already know. Um, so it took us about a year to come up with the idea and another good six months to really start piecing bits together. We started with Radical Forgiveness, that was strategic. I knew that grants, um, that writing grants would be easier from a place of forgiveness than starting with something like Transfuturism, which I can talk about later. That's the exhibit we're building now. Um, and I was right. I think we wrote like five or six grants that first year. We got all of them, right? Yeah. Because people were like, yeah, forgiveness. Let's talk about that. <laughs> um, and Radical Imagination was received in similar ways because people in, enjoy imagination. Um, Transfuturism, that exhibit, I, I photograph and interview trans and non-binary people. I send them to Ripley Bennett, an amazing um, trans woman, a black woman, who turns them into superheroes. She's an illustrator and an artist. And then she sends them back to me and I paint them on these huge canvases. And basically the argument that I'm making is that trans and non-binary people are superheroes because they're showing us how to live off the gender binary um, in the flesh right now. So Afrofuturism is all about speculation and I'm arguing that trans people do it right now in the flesh. Um, and so we've written lots of grants for that. We haven't even gotten 50% of them, right? Because not everyone is ready to have that conversation or understand how they are implicated in um, gender harm, right? When we adhere to the binary and refuse to see people who don't live um, on the binary. So it's been sort of an interesting, it's been interesting garnering support um, 
and shifting from something that is universal and valuable to something that people don't necessarily see the value in it. Yeah. That's been interesting. I'm, uh, I'm intrigued, and, and you identified the language we use. Uh, we at iRise are, are trying to engage and be very robust in, in working in terms of racial justice. Mm -hmm. uh, but what we're finding is that sometimes we can't lead with race, right? Yeah. And um, your work is both about race, but it's about all sorts of other intersectionalities. Uh, sexual identity is, mm -hmm. is, is clearly one of them. Um, is there, in, in terms of your work, I think you've already began to touch on, I'd just like to, to, to know more. What is, is there a universal language in which this work can be done? Or is there a new language like transfuturism that we need to start embracing and pushing? And, and how does that happen? Oh, I think it's both. And I think there are some words that we need to reimagine and use more often. So forgiveness is one of those words. Forgiveness is powerful, but the way that it's been constructed via religious rhetoric is it often feels unattainable, right? Like forgive and forget. I, I can't forget. And I can't fight against that, which I do forget, so I don't want to forget. Or um, turn the other cheek and accept people as they are. But if that person's causing me harm, I shouldn't just ignore it and, and pretend like it doesn't exist, right? So the ways that forgiveness has been deployed in religious spaces can often feel harmful. So we're taking that idea and making it radical and inclusive um, and, a, and a site for healing instead of a site that feels harmful and exclusive. Um, and then the same thing with imagination. Imagination has been regulated to play to children or to people who we deem um, quote unquote crazy because they don't think like everyone else. And we're saying, no, that is what we need. Um, in order to change the world, we have to imagine new systems. We cannot fix a system that was never designed to protect and love on you. So there's, you have to imagine. So imagination is a very serious tool that we can use. Um, and it's interesting watching adults remember how to imagine when they sit with us. It takes about 15 minutes. Yeah. They just want to talk about problems. Like, no, build it, play, touch. Um, but then with transfuturism, there isn't language yet to identify folks living off the binary as superheroes. So there we had to not just reclaim words, but create new words to sort of start drawing um, connections between race scholars who study this thing called Afrofuturism and the liberated future, and gender scholars who study this thing called non-binary, trans, non-conforming, whatever, these, these buzzwords and buzz identities, they're doing them beautifully in separate camps. How do we do them together? That's, that's fascinating. And sort of going back to sort of these, in some sense, sort of two developments in, in higher education, in academia, right? And in, in, in you know, critical race and ethnic studies or gender studies. Mm -hmm. um, I want to explore a couple things, I think, in that regard. The first is that you, you mentioned this work that you're doing, tied to the Justice Fleet, sort of tied to all the academic work you're doing, arising in the classroom. Mm -hmm. um, can you tell us a little bit about that, or some, some of the pushback you may have received, either from students, from colleagues uh, in particular, and um, also kind of the flip side, sort of surprise areas of support, like mm. where you weren't expecting this to be embraced, but it actually was. I, I haven't actually gotten any pushback. The biggest pushback I've gotten is from students who are like, how is this research? <laughs> because we're so used to research looking a very specific kind of way. And I'm like, let me show you. Come here. Um, because it obviously, well, maybe not so obvious, but it clearly it is. It is research. Um, 
But the support has been magnificent. Um, and I can't even begin to, t so for instance, when the student said make it mobile and I talked to Eileen, Eileen has a pop-up art studio and it's on a bike. So I was like, oh, well then we must, we need a truck. And Slew said, well, here's a truck and they gave me one. And I said, well, when do I have to give it back? They said, you don't. Okay, um, so that's the kind of support I did not expect it. Um, Slew has probably given me at least $20,000 in the last 18 months to continue building in addition to the truck. Um, and then we've gotten other grants, statewide grants, international, national grants. Um, so the, the support and love has been huge. And I do think that once people see Transfuturism, they'll be hooked. Because um, it's our first art exhibit that is not created by people, but that I'm, me and Ripley are actually building. Um, so it will feel much like a traditional museum experience with an interactive component. We're asking people to build a gender galaxy that um, creates freedom for all people, no matter what gender they identify with or don't identify at all. Wow. I think sort of going back to the conversation about it seems like superheroes is, is a, a portal, right, which a lot of people can, um, can have a conversation about. Yes. Right? And, and imagine new spaces. So. And there's something powerful about taking a person who's been so marginalized, so ostracized by society just for being themselves and saying, you have your own power. Look at it. Like, look at you in your own power, not in ways that we've decided you should be. Um, and so, like, our, one of our last two questions when I interview people are, do you think you have superpowers? And they all say yes. They tell me what they are. And then I say, well, if you, if you, if you could have more, what would you add? And so we use that to build their superpowers. Um, so it's a really cool project, and it's, I'm, I'm super excited to see people see themselves in the work. Um, the people who are, I've physically met with and painted, but also people who are like, I identify with this character. So I think it's going to be fun. So as a plug, when, where is that going to be presented, and when is it coming out? Well, we have two sneak peek shows coming up. Um, Davidson, North Carolina at Davidson College, and then the Monocle in St. Louis. Um, so these are like the first 10 canvases, and our goal is to have all 30 finished by August, but I am but one person, <laughs> and painting takes time. <laughs> but when we do our big reveal, we will make sure that it's big and everyone knows and everyone's invited. It sounds, sounds like something we definitely want to promote when, when that happens. Um, this work as well, and just what you're talking about, is, is, is really kind of breaking down the what has been the, the sort of traditional as well as kind of historic wall between academia and the public. Mm -hmm. And we know that um, this type of work uh, that many of us have been involved with, we've, we've been sort of breaking down these, these walls for, for decades, mm -hmm. right, for generations, centuries. Yeah. Right? If you even go back to, to the work of Du Bois, right, mm -hmm. as, as kind of the, the founder of some of this work. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of that line between public intellectual and I don't even know if there's a term private intellectual, but as, as a public intellectual, uh, how, what is the contributions you make and what are some words of wisdom for those that you would have to, to sort of in, to, to go down this path? Oh man, that's a big question. Um, I guess number one would be to love on yourself as often as possible because this work is hard and acknowledge when you need a break, acknowledge when you need people to support you and help you take care of yourself. Um, number two, the haters will always hate. So try not to give them too much energy um, because right there are haters out there. Um, number three, I would say be true and be honest to your convictions and, and never forget the communities that birthed you. 
Um, I think it's very easy to get detached from community once you reach a certain level of success and you no longer have to see community, um, especially if your family is not still embedded in those communities, so you, there's no reason, quote unquote, to go back. Um, losing touch severely impedes our ability to do our work. So you have to always stay in community and put community first. Um, I could not have built the Justice Fleet without the amazing support and love and wisdom and input from the communities that I serve with. Like, there's no way. Um, it would not be nearly as cool as it is if it was just my ideas. Um, so maintaining connection to community is, is of utmost importance. Um, and I guess last would just be surround yourself with people who are like-minded but with diverse perspectives um, so that you're constantly pushing yourself to grow and you're not sitting in an echo chamber, right, where your ideas are just being force-fed back to you to the point where you think it's truth with a capital T. Uh, capital T. So yeah, just always broaden your perspectives. There's always someone else to fight for and with and alongside who you haven't imagined yet because that might not be in your purview or it might not be a direct experience um, for you. But these things are connected. Thank you for that. Um, thinking specifically of the, of the Justice Fleet um, and that experience here at the University of Denver, um, if you were to come back here a year from now or five years from now, what would you have liked us to have grown and developed coming out of the Justice Fleet? Um, it sounds like there's a real need for connection here. I, I hear that theme a lot from the students wanting to be more connected to faculty, staff, and administrators. So I'd like to see some institutional choices to create um, space for that to happen. Because I think students are afraid to do that because, you know, they need to graduate, right? There's a power structure built in. And then I think faculty, staff, and administrators are probably just overworked and exhausted like everyone else. So how do we incentivize community within a campus Right, because it's a captive audience, but for some reason we're not captivated to spend time together. So, like, what can DU do that's institutionalized um, and incentivized to create a, a stronger community between all the constituents here? I, I'd like to see that. That's great. I think hopefully we can invite you back in a year <laughs> or, or five years from now, and, and we can at least demonstrate some, some, of, some of our steps towards that goal. One final question. Mm -hmm. um, any final thoughts, reflections, or affirmations on how institutions of higher education can be engaged in racial and social justice um, that you would like to share with our listeners? Uh, yeah, for this now that's an easier question. Stop assuming you have all the answers. Um, it's our job to curate and disseminate knowledge, not just be the keepers of it and pretend as if what we do is more valid or valuable or rigorous than anyone else. Um, tear down some of those walls. I know we have an iron fence around SLU with all these blue lights, so we've literally used urban tagging methods to say this is our space and only these types of people are welcome in and these types of people aren't. So tear down some of those walls and start learning with community um, because our community folk have so much to offer, but we have made the assumption that because you don't have the same degrees or the same set of keys to the same set of locks that I have, well, then it's not valuable. Um, and then listen. Listen to the bodies that are most marginalized who do have access to academia and allow them to bring in their networks um, so that we start to uplift the voices of those who are more marginalized. 
um, because we exist on campus, right, and off campus. I'm, I'm part of community and I'm a part of academe, but if my voice isn't valued, if I'm not listened to, then why am I here? Right? So taking the time to really listen and be attentive to the needs of those most marginalized and the communities that they're connected to is, a, a, is really important. So, you know, walk it like you talk it, essentially. Well, well, thank you. Thank you for those thoughts and thank you for your time uh, today. We really, I really enjoyed the conversation and I know we really enjoyed having you and thank the Justice you. Fleet here at the University of Denver. Uh, you have reached another episode of the Rage Pro Podcast brought to you by iRISE at the University of Denver. Connect with us at www.du.edu forward slash iRISE. While there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to hear about our initiative to create new pathways, partnerships to racial justice in Colorado and the Rocky Mountain West. Thank you.